So we're talking now about how we engage with financial institutions around accessing debt funding. So again, I, I revisit the conversation I had with my dad around the dining room table where he was warning me against the perils of debt rather than perhaps educating me about how to use debt. And I have an analogy for this. And my analogy looks something like this. When I was getting close to my 18th birthday, I had a learner's driver's license. And also around the dining room table, my dad told me about the risks of driving and the dangers of being in control of this vehicle in traffic. But what I found very interesting was, as I look back at it now, was he he paid a lot of money for me to go for driving lessons so that I could learn about these risks and how to manage this vehicle in the traffic. Yet, he didn't pay for me to go and learn about debt and how to use debt responsibly. And I suspect this is a common trap that many people fall into. It's this fear of debt. Don't go near it. Stay away from it. Yet, it's a very valuable part of our lives. Yet, we'll go and learn how to drive a car and overcome those challenges because we recognize that to get around, we have to have a vehicle. I want this to be a, the piece of information that I needed to understand around debt when I was between 18 and 20 or 25 and I wanted to buy my first house or I wanted to borrow money to do something with it. What did I need to know then? What are your thoughts on that, Sean? I think my parents also spent money on drivers and lessons and all that kind of stuff. And then I think to myself, why didn't they spend money on the important stuff like on you know, lessons for being married or being relationships? Married. I share your view because I've always been taught neither a lender nor a borrower be. Yes, uh, wisdom of the Bible, huh? And actually, if you, if you kind of unpack borrowing money, and let's look at the, the first principles of that. There's good borrowing and bad borrowing in my mind. So shall we start with some of the bad borrowing? Yes, I hear that often when I'm, when I'm talking in the classroom about how to use debt. And often I hear from my students, I say, yeah, but there's good debt and there's bad debt. So definitely that, that lingo exists okay. and we should explore so what that, is good debt and bad debt. No, that's cool. So we'll, we must talk about good and bad debt, but I'm talking about good and bad borrowing. So you can also borrow for bad reasons. Oh, yes. Okay. So keep going along that line of thought. So let's start with that because we've got more control over what, you know, how and why we borrow than actually what we borrow. We'll come to that second. So here's my first point. Never borrow for consumption. So the first flag that goes up for me is in our last podcast, we spoke about purchases on a credit card. Mm. And there's important subtleties here. Because even though you're making these purchases on your credit card, it doesn't fit into this category that we're talking about now is borrowing for consumption because we're going to settle that credit card at the due date. So going back to the credit card conversation, we're not using debt there at all. We're not borrowing any money. We are actually just using the interest-free period on our purchases. Yes. So we're just delaying the impact of that purchase on our credit balance or our home loan if we keep the money in the home loan. So I put that piece in there because a lot of students who I come across in my classroom think just by virtue of buying something on the credit card, you are borrowing money for consumption because they don't understand the dynamics. And so I just wanted to, right. just wanted to cover that ground. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Complete clarity there. Very good, Justin. So I, I see your point now. 
So even if you're spending money on your credit card, remember we've turned your credit card now into a non-debt instrument That's right. by settling in full on the due date. So your credit card is no longer a credit card. It's a money-making machine. So I like that. What worries me is that people are using money on their Woolworths card and not settling it in full and they're eating all of that stuff and then having to pay for it in six months later, twice the price. So I just want to say, guys, bottom line, if you're going to borrow, ask yourself, is it for consumption? Or what I would prefer is that you're using the money to do something that's going to give you a better return than the cost of the borrowing. So that would be the same as your Edgar's card or your your jet card or the same sort of thing. However, Sean, there are some of those cards that actually work like a credit card. So you can get a Woolworths card, which has a credit balance on it and and an interest-free period. But then you need to recognize that you use it in that way, as we've discussed with a credit card. 100%. So the Woolworths credit card, guys, don't forget, go and check that you've ticked the block, settle in full on the due date. The Edgar's card is an interesting one. I mean, if their product wasn't so bad, I mean, I'm talking about their clothing product here. I would say to people, that's good borrowing because they give you six months interest-free when you purchase your clothes. That's right. I think it's three or six months. So there you're not borrowing for consumption. You're actually getting the money for free as long as you remember to pay it all back within the six months. So that still comes back to our argument again that you're not using those, those products as debt. You're using them for transacting and they're giving you an interest-free period. Let's look at another example of borrowing for consumption. Let's look at the South African government. One of the reasons why the South African fiscus is in such dire straits at the moment is that we, most of our borrowing goes to pay salaries. That's the public sector wage bill, as it's often referred to. Yeah. So now that's no different to our professional people out there that we're talking to. Because what I want to say to you guys is, come on, man, don't borrow money for consumption. Your stuff that you consume. That must come out of your operating budget, not out of debt. Why do you want to borrow? So I come back to this point is borrowing is good or it's bad. So if you borrow money to invest into a project for which the returns are greater than the cost of the debt, that is good borrowing. And we're going to get onto that subject now. So in buying that asset that we use that debt to help us purchase, what's important is that asset must grow in value and or produce cash flows that come back to you as returns. Precisely. And they need to be greater than the cost of the debt. That's, I think it's as simple as that, Justin. I think it is. I agree with you. It is. I think what's also important there is the timeline. Some investments in assets might produce those returns further down the line. So in the short term, the cost might be higher than the return. But in the long term, the return must be higher and holistically the overall return must be higher than the cost. I love that principle. Let's look at a couple of different asset classes and see how they stack up against these principles that we've just put out there. I'm going to start with the first asset class. I'm going to call it the get more sex asset class. Ah, yes. That's the one that also goes in the ego box, doesn't it? High social visibility purchases. So let me guess. This is a Lani car. I think you've spot on the money. Shall we go with BMW? Let's go there. <laughs> so is buying a BMW on debt, is that, a, is that good borrowing and is that an effective use of debt? Well, 
I think of it in terms of, is the value of my BMW going to increase over the next five years or is it going to decrease? That's my first consideration in that question. And the next consideration is, by driving my BMW, is it going to put more cash in my pocket or less cash in my pocket? And I suspect the answer to those questions is, well, the value of my vehicle is going to decline and it's going to put less cash in my pocket as the vehicle gets older, becomes more expensive to maintain, and likely the fuel costs will increase. How does that sound? I'm sp- I think you're spot on the money. So unless the professionals out there listening to this are Uber drivers, then borrowing money for sex isn't a great idea. I'm with you on that one, especially if it's uh, sex in the back of a BMW. Yeah, that legroom's a problem. <laughs> what car do you drive, Sean? A BMW. <laughs> so, so I'm going to guess you own nothing on your BMW. You bought it for cash. I've, I've never owned owed any money on a motor car in my entire life. So I have a rule in my family that is if you want to buy a car, you have to pay cash. Great rule. So what if I need this car? I, can't, I need it for this first job I've got. I don't have the cash. And man, I've got to borrow it. Don't buy with your ego. Okay. So we're going to buy small. We're going to buy conservative. We're going to try buy. and pay this thing off in a year if we can. Yeah, buy cheap, buy reliable, and buy secondhand. Fantastic. So what's the next asset we're going to jump to? I mean, I think we've got to look at property, your house. Here's a question for me. Who's living in the house? Yeah, that's important. I was going to suggest maybe there's two boxes here. There's the house you live in and there's the house you don't live in, but it produces income for you because they're slightly different in how you look at them, aren't they? So just, I mean, I think as a word of caution, just be careful that you're not living in your biggest assets. Because yeah. our, home, our home purchase is probably going to be, for most of our professional listeners out there, it's going to be, that's going to be one of their biggest purchases, right? And the great news about property, I think, generally is that it, over, the, over the long haul, it tends, tends to escalate in value. Although one has to be mindful of the cost of getting in and out of property and transfer duties and capital gains tax. But notwithstanding all of that, most of the time there's going to be some capital appreciation. Fully understand that one should probably at some point in time get into the market, secure your home cost and try and pay that off as quickly as you can. The questions are going to come up here. Should you, should you be renting that house while you've purchased another asset that you let out? Or should you be getting into the ownership of property as early as possible? Now, now this might require a far more detailed conversation because our intention here is mostly to talk about debt. But let's just recognize that that is a, a subject matter that we need to explore but for now, return to the conversation of we're buying this asset, we're going to borrow money from the bank. How do we go about this process? How much should we be borrowing? How should we be entering this transaction? Great advice. So you want to obviously, I mean, I think one has to put some sort of equity into property. Come back to one of our first conversations, which is that banks are there to lend money, not to take risk. The difference there. So I think prudency would say to me, whatever home you're going to purchase, I would want to see you saving up at least a 20% deposit. As a right. thumb. So that's cash on hand that you, you're putting in. You called that putting equity in, but effectively in layman's terms, it's putting cash on the table yes. in order to purchase the property and the remaining portion, let's call it the 80% portion. 
we are going to borrow money from the bank to do that. I think that's a, just a rule of thumb and perhaps you can be more more conservative and put in more cash if you're able to do so. But let's start with that. The second part of this is what I would call affordability. And what you don't want to do is overextend yourself. I would say that you need to look at your income and I would look at what I would call your sustainable income. You don't take your best, so if you're a commission earner, don't take your best month in the last five years and then extrapolate from there. You need to take a more conservative approach. So what is your sustainable income? And multiply that by no more than 25%. So that when you calculate your affordability, you need not, you should not commit yourself to a bond repayment that is greater than 0.25 multiplied by your sustainable income going forward. So what we're getting into here is if you consider the, the pie chart of all your income, you're going to be allocating that income towards a rental expense. Let's call it in this case, the interest on your bond. And you're going to be paying some insurance and you're going to be paying some uh, school fees perhaps and some other expenses so if that pie chart we want to allocate no more than 25% of that towards the interest and capital repayments on the bond is that perhaps another way of explaining what you've of what you've said Sean absolutely you need to understand exactly what your bond repayment or what I call an installment is and we can share with the guys a bond installment calculator it really takes in the period of time, the interest rate, and um, obviously the capital amount that you borrow. But that amount, you don't want that to exceed 25% of your gross revenue. And I, and I would, again, say your sustainable gross revenue. And I, you know, I think that's pre-tax, so it's, it's a big chunk of change. So if you took 25% of what you earned sustainably going forward and you applied that to an asset which is growing in, in value, I think that's a, reasonable, that's a reasonable expectation or commitment on your part. Wow, that's a very useful piece of information. I didn't know that data when I was 25 or 26 and buying my first house. What else do we need to know, Sean, when we're accessing the bank for this loan on our house? Is there any, any tidbits of advice that you learned from your time at Nedbank all those years ago when you had customers coming to you to, to buy their first house? Yeah, so I mean, the first piece of advice is if you can afford to live at home and buy your first house and rent it out, that's, that's fantastic. I've always said to my own family, listen, stay at home as long as you can, but always put aside what you're saving when you stay at home so that you can put down a decent deposit. And I, I come back to the point, which is at least 20% of your purchase price that gives the bank a lot of comfort and it gives them a sense that you are serious and committed to paying your way on your, on your bond. Banks look for two things. They look for your ability to repay. And we've talked about that being less than 25% of your sustainable income. That's ability. Yes. The second thing that a bank's looking for is your willingness to pay. And these are two very subtly different things. One hand, you've got the ability to pay, so you can afford it. The second is you're not such a nice person and you're not that willing to pay. And banks rely on your credit history. They rely on your credit score. They rely on your prior commitments to credit and how you've managed that. 
and it's, it covers all sorts of things. Do you pay your cell phone bill every month? Do you pay your medical bills every month? Are you listed as a slow or bad payer? And if a bank sees any of those, it gives them a warning sign that you are not willing to pay. And you need to give the bank both your ability to pay and your willingness to pay. So, Sean, that's a beautiful piece because we can link this back to the podcast that we did on transacting with the bank. Now, if you've been using your credit card and you've been purchasing on credit and you've been settling by the payment date every single month and you've got a track record of this, the bank is, is watching this in a way. There's a transaction record when you go back to borrow the money to see your willingness, because that's a representation of your willingness, and how you use debt to show that you have a mature approach to this. Do you think that will so be remember, to our advantage when we want to borrow money from the same bank as we have this credit card from? And we call it track record. So remember, bankers by nature are conservative. So what they want to see is over a period of time, what is your track record? And of course, if they can see that you're behaving well with the credit card and the interest-free period and all of that, that's going to show some form of track record, but also your ability to put down 20%. And also not to overcommit yourself. These are the these are the languages that the that the bank wants to hear from you. So Sean, when I took out my first loan to buy a house, the bank manager said to me, Do you want to have a floating interest rate? In other words, it moves as the market interest rate moves, or would you like to fix your interest rate? And the thing I noticed was that the interest rates were different depending on whether I chose a fixed interest rate or a floating interest rate. Where, where do you stand on that? I'm a bit of a cynic on fixed and variable rates because I kind of know how the banks price these things. And of course, what they're doing is they're going to charge you a premium price on a fixed interest rate. And they wouldn't do that unless they were going to make some more money out of it. So I would say unless you've got a very strong crystal ball that tells you that interest rates are going to be rising and they're going to rise quite high, I think at this stage a variable interest rate is probably, is probably as good as you can do. And if we've been prudent and put down a 20% deposit and this expense only represents 25% of our pie, we should have enough space in order to accommodate an interest rate rise of uh, 2 or 3%. And that would, that would perhaps be a prudent way to approach how much money you're borrowing so that you've got space in your budget to accommodate that. You know, we're very lucky in that we have a very conservative interest rate regime in South Africa. So even if interest rates are going up, our treasury tends to try and make those increments quite small and, for us, and delay them over a fairly lengthy period of time. Remember what's happening in the meantime is that your income is going up, hopefully by more. So even if there's an upward interest rate cycle, um, I think with the prudent approach that we've offered, which is 20% deposit, less than 25% of your income as a commitment, I think you'll be able to ride out most interest rate cycles. That sounds about right. So let's talk a little bit legalese for a moment, because no doubt we're going to sign a very lengthy contract with the bank. And there's going to be some terminology that's going to come up here that talk to surety, joint and several liability, and there may even be some things that we need to contemplate like penalty interests and hidden costs. Should we start with surety? What does that mean if I'm 
from having to provide surety? And is this something relevant to someone buying their first home? I think it is if you're going to buy your first home uh, with a, either a, a company or if you're going to purchase it through a trust, or in some cases, you might want to purchase it with somebody else as a co as a co-borrower. And in all of those cases, you need to understand that the bank's are going to be as conservative as they possibly can and hold all parties fully liable for the first amount, for the full amount, and that they will reserve the right to go after the party that's going to be easiest for them to recover their money. That's the bottom line. So in any of these relationships, if you're the person that's got the moral fortitude and also has some resources, whether it's your parents or your own or whatever, please understand that the bank will always take the path of least resistance and go after the person that's most likely to pay the money as soon as possible. And they will be able to go after you for the full amount, regardless of what you thought you were going into as an individual. So I think it's important to clarify here, as, uh, as an individual buying a house in your own name, well, of course, you are completely liable for that debt. But what you were suggesting, say, if you buy this with a partner and you, in your mind you said, well, I can only be liable for half the debt. If your partnership deteriorates and you split up and now the other person stops paying because they can't pay and they've got no money, you could find yourself in a position where you are liable for the entire debt on that property. And that's what joint and severally liable means. Absolutely correct. It sounds a bit scary to me. It does sound scary, doesn't it? And I think the other point of clarity there is if you buy the property in the name of a company where the company has no revenue, has no assets, and the bank has no surety, if you want, that they can recover the loan from the company, they're going to go through the company to the individual, which is you as the owner of that company, and say, well, you are responsible. And therefore, you actually have to give up some of the benefits of being in a company, which are as a as a shareholder in a company, you have limited liability in that company that you're going to have to put that aside because as the shareholder, you will have to sign surety for the loan of the company. Correct. There's another aspect to banking that a lot of people don't always appreciate, and that is that the banks will also insert a clause that gives them the right of set off. And what that essentially means is that let's say you've got a property, it's not going well, you've, I don't know, whatever's happened, but you've also got an investment that, uh, let's say you inherited some money and you've got a fixed deposit sitting with, with some money in it. The banks will have got you to sign in their bond documents, in their loan agreements, the right of set off, which allows them to set off your debt with whatever other financial resources they can get their hands onto. Could that mean accessing cash in an account that's held at the bank? It certainly can. In fact, that's exactly the purpose of the right of set-off is to say, hey, you know, you can't leave us hanging high and dry on the property and then sit with these investments or these savings that you've got elsewhere. We will go and set that off against what the debt is. And they don't have to ask your permission. Once you've signed that document, they, they're able to do that. I mean, the reality is that most of the people listening to our podcasts are, are willing to make their payments. So none of these things should be of too much concern if you're willing and able to, if you follow our advice, you'll be willing and you'll be able to make your repayments. But it's just worth knowing that, the, that this is in your bond document. Yeah. Okay. Very valuable. Great. Which leads us to something called pen, penalty interests. If you default or if you're in arrears on your bond, 
you will not be charged necessarily at the original rates that you were offered. Banks will consider you now to be a higher risk because you have not displayed the willingness and ability to repay. Price and interest rates are a consequence of risk. So if you're looking more risky, the bank is quite entitled and will increase your interest rate on your outstanding debts. Okay, so I think the, the prudent action there is if you recognize that you're coming up against a cash crunch and you may not be able to make certain payments, you perhaps want to go and have a conversation with the bank very early on about potentially capitalizing a month or two months or three months worth of interest payments so that you can maybe maintain your rate before getting back on the payment cycle as soon as possible. Banks call this making an arrangement. So you want to be able to go in and negotiate that while you still have some credibility. If you wait too long, then the bank assumes that you've lost the willingness and ability to repay and they will recalculate your interest rate. So Sean, let's, let's extend this a little bit further. We've bought a house, we've borrowed some money against it, we're managing that payment uh, quite successfully. And now we're considering a, an asset that we don't live in. We're going to borrow some money to go and buy a house, which is going to be a rental house. What thoughts around the borrowing can you provide on that? I would consider this to be good borrowing because you're going to take that money at a certain price and you're going to invest it into something that's going to give you a better yield. But I want to introduce and reintroduce the concept that you talked about earlier of time. So interestingly, with money and, and investments, time is, your, is normally your friend. So he has a little bit of a challenge, and that is that to get into those rental properties, you, you're probably not going to break even for, for a fair amount of time. And I think that's the first thing that we just need to, to deal with here, is that in most annuity type investments, there's always a period of time where the revenue from the investment is not going to be sufficient to pay the debt and the installments as well as the running costs on those investments. So we need to be we need to be reasonably comfortable with that. How do we manage that? I think that we manage that by proper planning. And this is where one has to be pretty honest with yourself and you have to be quite rigorous. So we are now talking about investing into a long-term investment, which happens to be fixed property. We need to understand what the cost of managing that investment is, not just the installment. And I see this time and time again. Investors in property that are going to buy to rent, they go out there, they look at their installment, they calculate what they can get as a rent, and they try and get those as close to each other as possible. What they don't realize is that there are operating expenses that they need to cover every single month before they even pay back the bond repayment. So I'll give you, I'll give you some for instances, maintenance, rates and taxes, property management fees, commissions to state agents or tra uh, agents that are relocating people, you need to pay them a chunk of change. So it's all about proper planning, Justin, and having a really good operational and financial plan, which has a, your, you need to get your head around what all those expenses are that are going to be netted off your income. And then you're going to still have to make your bond repayment. And most people don't get that right. Okay. So a very important consideration in that calculation is your cash deposit that you can put down on this asset. Because of course, the more cash you can put down, the less capital repayments you have on the bond, which then allows you to control whether, whether you net positive income from your investment. And the more cash you can put down, effectively, you can then control, you can produce a cash income in that your bond repayment is less. 
That's the mechanics of borrowing to invest in a lettable property. Principles are quite similar to personal purchasing. So you obviously have a purchase price. You want to put in as much cash as you can. You want to reduce the monthly installment that you pay. We can talk about whether you've got that in a PDY limited because some of the interest can then be subtracted as an, as an expense. We can get to that in, when we talk about this in a bit more detail. But you need to have a fairly clear idea of what your operating expenses are and you need to create some sort of a buffer. Because here's the other interesting thing that most people don't budget for, is that your unit is going to be empty at some stages. You're either renovating, or you're between tenants, or there's an oversupply of product in the market, and you're just not securing a proper tenancy. And all of these things need to go into your financial calculation. Yeah, so those, those will be variables in the in the algorithm of your of your rental property. So I don't want to go into those right now because we're going to have a conversation at some stage which is all going to be about buy and rent and you know which one should you do and where if you are going to be uh, letting a property how do you select the right property and how do you find the right tenants and we'll get to those conversations in future podcasts because those are critical. So let's revert back to our our use of debt. We have covered using debt to to buy a property for ourselves we've discussed good debt and bad debt and not using borrowings for consumption we've spoken about buying vehicles and the fact that we should pay cash and we shouldn't be borrowing money to buy vehicles there's one last piece that i'm going to pop on the end here and maybe this is a little bit of tongue-in-cheek and a bit in humor and think about uh sean should we be borrowing money to invest in bitcoin what is bitcoin <laughs> That's the best question you can ask. Because all I know about Bitcoin at the moment is it's going down. And if you'd asked, uh, if, I guess if I'd asked the question in December about borrowing money to buy in Bitcoin, there were a lot of people who were doing that because the price was going up. So it's beautiful when it's going up, but it's not so, not so fun when it's coming down. So maybe the, the question, what is Bitcoin, is a question for another podcast. But I'm assuming look- your answer is going to be, don't borrow money to buy Bitcoin. I wouldn't even use your money to buy Bitcoin. <laughs> Thanks, Sean. <laughs> Is there anything further that we need to talk about here on debt for now? No, but you've opened up a fantastic question around what is an asset. And I'd love to join. I'd love you all to join us for that podcast. What is an asset? Because underlying our entire discussion now is that if you're buying a proper asset, then debt is your friend. Yes, yes. And as I say in the classroom, I love debt because I know the rules and I know how to use it. Break the rules and debt will kick you in the ass.